I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 and verse 15. I'll read this text. We will gather at the throne of grace and we'll begin our study this morning. Exodus 20, verse 15. You know these words well. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Our Father, these words were thundered from Mount Sinai amidst flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. What a sound it was to hear this commandment with the other commandments reverberating from the mouth of the Almighty and in the hearts of those that were gathered. And Father, this word still is as relevant now to us as it was then to them. We pray that you would, you would come down from on high. You would speak this powerful word in our hearts this day. Cause us to tremble at your word, even as we are so commanded to do. It's to that one that you will look who trembles at your word. Lord, make us to tremble, to hear the very voice of God speaking through the mouth of a mere man, that we wouldn't be the same when we left as when we came today, but that you who send your word, that you would send it abroad within our hearts. Indeed, this engrafted word which is able to save our souls, this word which is able to build us up in the most holy faith, this word that is timeless and timely, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Give me help from, from, your, from your spirit to speak in such a way as to be heard. And not only to be heard, but that this word would lodge powerfully within our hearts and affect us in the way that we live. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've commenced a study of the Ten Commandments, and we're actually in the third message, third of four on the Eighth Commandment that we are considering this morning. We looked, first of all, at the Eighth Commandment, its expansive meaning. It's hard to plumb the depths of this command. It impacts us in our thinking and our behavior in, in ways that we could not list. We looked at the Westminster Larger Catechism's summary of what that means as we considered our second heading, its catechetical summary in that document, the Westminster Larger Catechism. We look first of all at the duties required by the Eighth Commandment, and then we looked at the sins forbidden by that commandment. And as I promised this morning, and God willing, next time I'm in the pulpit, we will look at specific application of the Eighth Commandment to pertinent issues in society and in the church. What does this mean to us as, as people who live in this world and those who are members of Christ's church? And we're only going to be able this morning to look at the Eighth Commandment as it applies to some pertinent issues in society. Next time, God willing, we'll look at pertinent issues in the church. And I have seven areas. You could probably think of more. But we're going to look at seven particular areas in which the 
eighth commandment impacts us living in this world. And we're going to ask these questions and give answers from the Word of God. The first question is this, does the eighth commandment address the subject of private property ownership? That may sound like an abstract idea, but it's very concrete. Does the commandment address the subject of private property ownership? And you're probably saying, well, duh, pastor. (laughs) Yes, yes, it does, obviously. God's prohibition against stealing assumes private property ownership. Only possessions can be stolen. Ownership of property, likewise, is assumed in the 10th commandment in his prohibition against coveting what belongs to our neighbor. Until more recently in America, the question of private property ownership hardly deserved an answer. The ownership of property, both real and personal, was taken for granted. It was enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and codified in the Constitution and is protected by sundry laws of the land. But with the rise of a Marxist mentality in our day, private property is increasingly coming under attack by the radical left. It has become a very relevant issue in our nation. And this subject deserves an entire sermon or even a series devoted to it. But in answering this question, I can only touch upon its chief principles. First of all, and foundationally, we must realize that God is the absolute owner of everything, including everything that we possess. Psalm 24 and verse 1, we could go to many texts, but this is one that's very plain. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world, and those who dwell in it. God owns us as well as everything. And since he holds the patent on us, he has a right to tell us how we're to live. Therefore, no person is the absolute owner of anything that he possesses. We are instead stewards of God's property. Everything we own is on loan from him. And with this qualifying principle in mind, the Bible secondly explicitly teaches in many places that people do in fact own possessions. I already mentioned that. But plainly, that Abraham bought a parcel of land in Canaan that became his assumes private property ownership. The Bible's repeated prohibition against moving boundary markers likewise assumes property ownership. That King Ahab killed Naboth to steal his vineyard. That Israelites possessed family inheritances. And that family land plots were to be returned to their original owner in the year of Jubilee. All of these underscore the reality and the sanctity of private property. The New Testament likewise not only assumes property ownership rights from the Old Testament, but affirms them explicitly in the New Covenant. Jesus reiterated the Eighth Commandment to the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus promised to restore fourfold what he had stolen. In Romans, Paul argues 
from the Eighth Commandment that one who loves his neighbor will not steal from him. In 1 Corinthians, we are taught that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Ephesians, former thieves were commanded to steal no longer. In Acts, some Christians sold personal property to provide for their needy brethren. Even pagan Romans without scripture believed in private property ownership. The abolition of private property is essential to the overthrow of capitalism and the institution of communism. Karl Marx, in his Communist Manifesto, stated that, quote, the theory of the communist may be summed up in a single sentence, the abolition of private property, end of quote. Abolition of private property, writes, ostensibly in the name of collective good is essential to communism. The Bible, on the other hand, presents private property as a personal right, not simply a privilege, but a right. Much less is it a grant from the government. Unless Americans wake up to this fact and assert and defend the right of private property, I believe that a whole cadre of political thieves and thugs will rise up and steal what belongs to us. Increasing government overreach now imperils those rights. The expanding and centralizing of state power, both nationally and internationally, threatens to overturn the sacred right of private property ownership assumed in the Eighth Commandment in the name of this collectivist ideology. Indeed, the Eighth Commandment presupposes a free society ruled by the principles of the law that brings liberty, a liberty in which free individuals possess real and personal property. So yes, the Eighth Commandment does address the subject of private property ownership. Secondly, does the Eighth Commandment have a word to say about gambling? Well, I hope none of you are saying, well, Pastor, you're starting to meddle with me now. Well, the answer to this question, yes, it does. The assumption of the Eighth Commandment is that we are stewards of all that God has given us. Even what we gain by vocational diligence or bequeathed to us by inheritance or bestowed as a gift comes ultimately from God because He owns all things. So common was the concept of stewardship in the first century that Jesus employed it as the context for many of His parables. Foundational to faithful stewardship is that stewards do not jeopardize the possessions they manage for others by carelessness or misuse. It's not ours to play with. It's ours to invest for the benefit of the one for whom we are stewards. Now introduce the practice of gambling, or gaming as it is euphemistically Called. Gambling involves playing games of chance with money. Right at its root, gambling denies that we are stewards of God's property. Well, what else does the Bible say about gambling? 
Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that we ordinarily gain wealth by honest, diligent labor. That's what God has prescribed. Indeed, that's the way that God provides for people. Proverbs 13 and verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Or if you have an ESV, it says wealth obtained or gained hastily dwindles. But the one who gathers little by little, as it reads, increases it. Gambling, on the other hand, seeks to gain wealth suddenly and with little work. Gamblers use their wealth in a risky venture to gain more wealth. Labor, on the other hand, holds out the promise of pay commensurate with work performed. A laborer is worthy of his wages, Jesus said. That's the principle. No gambler, should he win, is worthy of his winnings. You say, I have some objections to this, Pastor Steve. Well, doesn't investing on Wall Street involve the same risk as going to the casino? No, it doesn't. Now, risk, of course, is involved in all investments. But gambling doesn't involve real investment because money is bartered not against real gain, but it's bartered against chance. That's what it boils down to. And brethren, if you have any doubt about this, look at the swanky casinos. Does it advertise that they're the losers? No, it advertises that they're the winners. On the other hand, risk when investing in goods and services can be minimized by researching your investment. You can do due diligence and find out how it's done in the market. One man as well said, gambling is the sure way of getting nothing for something. What about this objection? Well, isn't gambling just another form of innocent entertainment? Well, entertainment is enjoyable precisely because it offers distraction from our ordinary work and labors. And certainly gambling is a distraction But not all forms of entertainment are legitimate, especially when they are commonly associated with clear violations of God's law, such as drunkenness, graft, prostitution, etc. I suggest that gambling does not qualify as a legitimate diversion, since it really promises nothing but the thrill of risk for gain. Diligent labor, on the other hand, pays rich dividends. We return to Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This this isn't just a worldly mindset. Notice, this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. God blesses diligent hard work with gain, with a good conscience, 
with not an overfull belly, you can lay down and go to sleep. So first, the Bible teaches that we ordinarily gain wealth by honest and honest, diligent labor. Second, gambling necessarily requires someone to gain at the expense of another's loss. When you do diligent work, you work and you receive pay for what benefit you gave to your employer. But gambling isn't like that. It requires someone to lose in order for someone to gain. In a work situation, the worker gains because the employer gains. There's no fair exchange, no equitable compensation in gambling. Thirdly, gambling at its bottom is motivated not by grace, but by greed. Not by contentment, but by discontentment. I like to think of gambling as a tax on covetousness. It pays fool's wages. John MacArthur aptly states five reasons why gambling is wrong. In summarizing them, he says it is wrong, first of all, because it denies the reality of God's sovereignty by affirming the existence of luck or chance. Furthermore, it is wrong because it is built on irresponsible stewardship, tempting people to throw away their money. Further, it is wrong because it erodes a biblical work ethic by demeaning and displacing hard work as the proper means of one's livelihood. Again, it's wrong because it is driven by the sin of covetousness, tempting people to give in to their greed. Finally, it's wrong because it is built on the exploitation of others, often taking, adva taking advantage of poor people who think they can gain wealth in an instant. Praise on poor people. When I lived in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, we had a large casino there. Before they built other ones down in the lower Michigan, busloads of people would come. It's usually older people, people on fixed incomes. They're coming there to barter what little they have upon the possibility of gain and many of them go home broken, and you can see it on them when they get back in the bus. And brethren, I suggest that there's something far more serious here. Gamblers hazard not only their temporal prosperity, but also the destiny of their never-dying soul. How tragic to barter your soul on, losing, on a losing proposition for all eternity. The covetous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, the Bible casts gambling in negative light. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, The soldiers at the foot of the cross threw dice for my Savior's garments. And I have never heard the rattling of dice, but I have conjured up the dreadful scene of Christ on his cross and gamblers at the foot of it with their dice bespattered with his blood. 
I do not hesitate to say that of all sins, there is none that more surely damns men, and worse than that, makes them the devil's helpers to damn others than gambling. Now you can go out, you, you can get on your computer, or your iPad, or your phone, and you can gamble with that little device in your hand. I have a relative who lost $64,000 in one fell swoop by, an unfoolish, by a foolish investment. Brethren, if the proposition sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Thirdly, does the Eighth Commandment speak to the subject of sex? Well, I got your attention now. Yes, it does. Let me explain. We saw that the Seventh Commandment limits sexual activity to the marriage covenant union between one man and one woman. All other sex is illicit. It is forbidden. Fornication, adultery, and homosexuality, and all species of deviant sexual activity not only violates God's design for sexual, for sexual intimacy, it also involves theft. Let me explain. Theft happens when we give to another what he or she has no right to take, or when they take what we have no right to give. Such is the case, first of all, in all illicit sexual relations. Paul describes sexual sin in terms of transgression and fraud. Look at 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-7. through 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now remember these Thessalonian Christians, they were saved out of raw paganism. They had turned from idols to serve the one living and true God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. If you have any doubt about what I just said earlier, I'm stamping it here again. Now this word defraud here, it has the basic idea and meaning of having more than another. And here, in this context, it means to take advantage of, to exploit, to cheat. It's used similarly in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, about taking advantage of someone. So we have no right to give away what someone else doesn't have a right to take. But brethren, the Eighth Commandment also speaks to lawful sexual relations 
between married couples, commanding husbands and wives not to steal from one another by depriving one's spouse of their conjugal rights. You see, to do so is robbery. Stealing what rightfully belongs to one's spouse. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2-5. through 5. Because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. <coughs> to what conclusion? Paul brings us. Note plainly, verse 5, stop depriving one another. This word deprive means to defraud, to steal, here of conjugal rights, to withhold. This word's also used differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 of cheating each other in law courts. <clears throat> Brethren, husbands and wives steal from each other when they refuse sexual intimacy with their spouse. Now there's a lot more that can be said here and I could qualify this thing to death but I'm not going to do it. God has put the two of you together, husbands and wives, not to steal from by not giving to each other. But God has given you your wife and your husband to give to that other person, not to take from them by not giving to them. And some husbands and some wives, particularly wives, and I'm not picking on the wives, but they'll use the marriage bed as a bargaining chip to the husband. You do this or that, and we'll meet in the bedroom tonight. Brethren, that's wickedness. The bed is not to be bartered. Brethren, God rewards this, regards this marital theft as wickedness. It must not happen in our marriages. Fourthly, does the Eighth Commandment approve of stealing from the government? Well, obviously, if you know the direction I'm going and the answers I'm giving, you say, no, it, it doesn't somehow. It doesn't approve. Well, brethren, we violate the Eighth Commandment in essentially two ways in relation to civil government. First of all, we steal from government when we fail to pay our taxes. Paul makes that plain in uh, Romans chapter 13. Secondly, we steal from the government when we fail to give civil authorities the honor due them as God's servants put in place by Him. And again, I could qualify all of this, but I'm not going to. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers 
and the praise of those who do right, that is, when they're doing their job. That's what they're called to do. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the king. And we could also look at Romans 13, the first six verses. But verse 7, Romans 13. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Brethren, we must not steal either taxes or proper honor from those whom God has placed over us. Speaking about proper honor, this common chant that's heard in stadiums all around the country and even some parts of the world, F. Joe Biden! That had, this should have no place upon the lips or even in the heart of a true Christian. We're violating the command to give honor to whom honor is due when we do that. And brethren, even if we cannot praise the president's character or affirm his policies, we must still honor his office and position as determined by God. Indeed, we are not to excoriate him with such language. Instead, we are to use our lips to lift him up in prayer. I preach this to my own self. Fifthly, does the Eighth Commandment comment on personal business dealings? Well, we saw this when we looked at the Westminster Larger Catechism. But notice Proverbs 20 and verse 14. You can just see this. Maybe you said this yourself. Maybe you've been at a garage sale or some kind of sale. And you're bartering, and you end up paying the price. And you have a sad face on, and you have this look on your face, that I've been taken here, but I'll pay the price. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, then he boasts. Well, I sure took that guy. Now, I don't know anyone that doesn't like to find a good deal or to make a profitable sale. But we must be careful not to steal by grossly undervaluing another's goods or services or by likewise inflating our own. We're not being good stewards. Brethren, happy are the honest. A good conscience may be relinquished cheaply, but it cannot be purchased at any price. We're reminded once again that honesty is the foundation of the Eighth Commandment. Honesty is essential to establishing trust in our business dealings. And therefore, we steal a person's trust when we deceive him. And this happened when Jacob sneaked away with his family without informing his father-in-law Laban. You remember the story from the 30th of, of Genesis? 
The Bible says that Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. And, you know, we can use all kinds of justifications to say, well, what I'm doing is right. All kinds of excuses and arguments. He cheated me, and therefore, you know, I can cheat him. Brethren, a literal rendering of this is Jacob stole Laban's heart. When we steal someone's heart, we take what doesn't belong to us by way of deception. You see, when others have a right to the truth, and that's most of the time, there's sometimes when they don't deserve the truth and we need not give it to them, we must never tell a lie. We just don't always have to tell everything that we know. But that's another sermon. When others have a right to know the truth, we must speak honestly and forthrightly, even if it may be costly to us or get us in trouble. You children know that. You need to be honest when they ask you, did you do this or that? Mom and dad said, don't do this, or they told you to do that. Did you really do what they told you to do, or you did, did you do something they told you not to do? I remember when I was a kid, if I did something which violated my parents' rules and I lied about it, I got two spankings. I got one for what I didn't do or should have done, or I did do and shouldn't have done. Then I got the harder whipping for lying about it. Brethren, we steal another's heart when we lie to him. Christian, for you, honesty is not simply the best policy, it is the only policy. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Sixthly, does the Eighth Commandment cover panhandling? Yes, I believe it does. The evil of panhandling seems to be increasing across America, especially in cities and states governed by progressive politicians. We live in one. Homelessness is a festering sore on the face of many cities. Here, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., others like cities. And here's the question. Are Christians required to give to those who ask for handouts? Well, the problem isn't new. It was common during the Civil War when Mr. Plummer addressed the subject of beggars in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. His word is timely. He writes, What legislation can do in the matter, statesmen must decide. But let the conscience of each one settle it, that beggars who could get employed and who are able to work for a livelihood ought not to be countenanced. The law of Scripture and the law of nature are clear on this point. I think clearer than some Christians are on this point. 
In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. Genesis 3.19 Even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if anyone would not work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Every man ought to set his face steadfastly against a system of beggary. Everywhere the scriptures pronounce against the slothful. And he gives a number of texts from especially the book of Proverbs, but also Romans 12.11. So far, Plummer goes on to say, so far, therefore, as beggary is the result of indolence persisted in a refusal to work. The duty of those who have means is to refuse assistance. End of quote. Now, brethren, to be sure, not all homeless persons are sluggards. Some need mental health attention, others drug rehabilitation, some both. Still, many who are able in mind and body steadily refuse work, but instead beg or live off government handouts. It is not our duty to support their indolence. You see, what such people need is not a handout, they need a hand up. Admittedly, extending a hand up requires tough love, and often <clears throat> our own expense and inconvenience. Tough love places conditions upon assistance. It lays down firm rules joined to realistic expectations. Offering this kind of help is not unkind but demonstrates principled love in tangible ways. Underlying this principle is the general rule that applies outside no less than inside the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Finally, and relatedly, does the Eighth Commandment support survival stealing? Some progressive thinkers and politicians promote legislation that would decriminalize theft in the case of thieves who steal to supply their temporal needs. This happens out in Seattle. Reading from an article, I won't mention her name, but she's a the city... The Seattle City Councilor has proposed a reform measure which would potentially exempt up to 100 different misdemeanors from criminal prosecution. Some of the charges included are, are theft, shoplifting, harassment, criminal trespass, and a host of others. And the King County Director of Public Defense said, in a situation where you took that sandwich because you were trying to meet your basic need of satisfying your hunger, we as the community will know that we should not punish that. This or that conduct is excused, she said. 
And this person goes on and, and writes this. The proposal is intended to avoid the punishment of people who steal to just survive. However, the proposal goes far beyond that, not just merely stealing food for basic survival, basic stealing, basically stealing anything that can be flipped for money in order to purchase necessities would be allowed as long as the perpetrator claimed the money gained from stealing the items would be used for essentials. End of quote. Brethren, it is evident, I think, on the face of it, that such a radical plan is destined to failure, not just because of its faulty premise that stealing is permissible under some conditions. And this begs the question, how would it be possible to prove that such stolen products would be used to purchase essentials? Who defines what essentials are? And you know what? Most of that stuff that's stolen from stores, you see people going with rack, you know, racks of clothes, taking them out the store, and they're not even accosted going out the door. Do you think they're using it to go maybe to McDonald's or to Safeway and, and buy food? I'll tell you what they're using it mostly for. And even if it was to buy food, is it still right? Brethren, the wisdom of moderns is folly. Ancient voices offer a timely and timeless word that exposes this nonsense. Proverbs 6 and verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry... Agar prayed that he would not be poor so that he would not be tempted to steal. Proverbs 30, verse 9. Lest I be in want and profane the name of my God. Mr. Plummer perceptively observes that man's standard of ethics, especially when drawn from his appetite, is very low. I might put it this way. A man's grumbling belly eats away at his honesty. The Bible understands this, but it makes no allowance for subsistence stealing. Instead, it should be prosecuted. Solomon, who wrote Proverbs 6 and verse 30, Man do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, goes on to say in the very next verse, addressing the subject of the subsistence thief, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. And sevenfold doesn't necessarily mean seven times as much. That isn't what the law required. Sevenfold means he needs to repay completely what he stole. And add 20% to it, actually. Charles Bridges comments on the wise king's words. Here is no excuse or impunity for the thief. The full restitution that he is compelled to make, perhaps sweeping away all his little substance, proves that no extremity can excuse the transgression of the law. Let him earn his bread by honest industry. 
If the fruits of industry fail, let him, trusting in God, seek the help of his fellow creatures. If he have faith to trust, he will never be forced to steal. Matthew chapter 6, 25-33. At the end, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll provide all of your needs, is what Jesus said. Bridges says, Yet his extreme temptation renders him an object rather of pity than of scorn. So does the Eighth Commandment require us to give handouts to panhandlers? Well, I think the Bible says no. We should offer principled assistance if we are able, but we must not support laziness. Now, there might be some here say, oh, good, I'm off the hook here. I don't have to do anything for those, those bums. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches either. Even an unsanctified person, even his wisdom teaches, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. What does that say? Well, brethren, we really provide no substantial assistance with mere handouts. In fact, they may actually hurt rather than help. Instead, we must first discern if the needy person who seeks our help is serious about improving his lot. And the fact is, many are not. They need to be taught that they should. Brethren, Jesus fed hungry bellies as a means to feed empty souls. How did Peter respond to the crippled beggar? Did he give him money when he held out his hand for alms? Did he offer him nothing? Neither. He offered him what money could not buy. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he had to, the power to give what he offered. And we know the story. He rose up and walked, walking and leaping and praising God. Well, what does this say to us? Brethren, with our material assistance, we must provide it when we can. But not just give material assistance willy-nilly. We must give it in a principled way. With our material assistance, we must offer it from the hand of Jesus Christ. When we give them something that they need temporally, we need to offer them something they need eternally. Not just something that will fill their belly, but something they need for their never-dying soul. Jesus fed people to have a captive audience to hear the gospel. And I say we're not doing our due diligence if we just give a handout, but we don't give them, as it were, a hand up to Jesus, speaking to them of the Savior that came into this world to save poor sinners like you and me. With our material assistance, even if it may be costly and it may be inconvenient, realizing that you may not ever see the fruit of your labors and your prayers, some may come and take and never give. But we do it as unto the Lord, right? 
And so with our material assistance, we must offer the bread of life, urging them to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And in so doing, he'll provide all of their temporal needs. Well, that is what I have to say this morning. God willing, we'll come back to this in three weeks and we'll consider pertinent issues that the Eighth Commandment addresses in the church. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we listen to a message like this and realize how tightly clenched our fists are? We may come here looking for all kinds of of support for not being generous. Lord, all of those excuses are stripped away and we're left face to face with the God who gives, the God who gives liberally. And he doesn't give to the deserving, he gives to the miserable, the helpless, things that they can't provide for themselves. Lord, we couldn't save ourselves, but you sent your son to give of himself. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give. And he gave his life a ransom for many. He paid the price that our sins deserved under your wrath so that we might receive forgiveness of our sins and eternity in heaven with you forever. So Lord, let not anything I've said in being firm and principled in our approach to others, especially those that are in need, increase our unwillingness to help, but rather our hearts would be liberated, our hands would be liberated, and we would seek to use material goods in an attempt to open doors for eternal gain. So hear us as we pray these things. Lord, we have received. To whom much has been given, much is required. Lord, let us take this principle and put it in our pockets that we might give it. And Lord, if there's any here that are spiritual beggars, oh, they might be financially well healed, but they have not that one thing needful. They don't have Christ. Or they can have everything and without Christ have ultimately nothing. But they may have little to nothing. And if they have Christ, they have everything. And so we pray that you would take this word and you would bring it home powerfully to those that are spiritual paupers. Grant them faith and repentance so that they might leave this place as spiritual princes, sons and daughters of God, fellow joint heirs with Jesus Christ, members of the, of, the, of the kingdom of God. Lord, hear us. This message is focused largely upon material things. But Lord, flip it in a spiritual direction that we might hear the voice of the shepherd calling us to be generous with him, even as he's been generous to us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.